0: Joseph Naus, this is the Spiritual Angry podcast. Today is New Year's Eve. It is December thirty first, two thousand seventeen, the final day of the year. I'm in Los Angeles, California, in Highland Park, a neighbor on the e- a neighborhood on the east side of Los Angeles. It's about. This is not about. It's exactly eight fifty eight p.m about three years before we kick off the official flip from 2017 to 2018. This is the final spiritually angry podcast. I said I was going to do this for six months. I kept my promise. It's great to keep promises. Man, every year uh, since I've been sober, well... Every year since I've been out of prison, I should say, which happened in the first two years of my sobriety. If you want the details on that, read my book, Straight Pepper Diet. Um, so probably the last 10 years, let's say, I've been sober for 14 years and I've been smober for nine years. That's really when, the, when things really changed for me is when I got smober, when I... Uh, Put the kibosh on the sex addiction stuff and the alcohol. That was like uh, putting out the fire. But really living started when I put out the cigarette. And that's when all the great stuff started happening. The golf, the work, the writing, the, the being as healthy as I wanted to be, the food, the reading, just everything. It was just like that's when I started living life. That happened nine years ago, so ever since ever since then, let's say about ten years ago, I've been I've journaled. I journal a lot with in regards to golf. I keep track of where I am with my golf swing and with my golf game. But I also just journal in general. And I I just today I was looking back through my 2016, uh, you know, the end of 2016 and the 2017 journal. And I usually do like a little recap. And then on the beginning of 2017, I'll set my goals. And man, it's so refreshing to look back on a year and look back on my goals and see that they're consistent. Not that I achieved every goal, but just to look back and be like, man, last year in my 2016 uh, journal, I, I... I wrote down pretty much the same thing I wrote down this time. You know, I wrote, I remember I wrote, I've meditated more, prayed more, uh, worked with sponsees in 12-step programs more, went to more agape, uh, international spiritual community uh, services more, read more books, wrote more. Um, What else? My, you know, ate well, worked out a lot, golfed constantly, practice, 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 just live the life I want to be living. And it's just so wonderful. I'm just, I, sometimes I get depressed. It's part of who I am. I don't know if it's part of my alcoholism or whatever it is, but I have depression. And, uh, it's so much easier because when I have depression now, I, it's like I can, rise up and even though i feel depressed i can rise up above it and look down at myself kind of and go okay you're gonna be all right you just make it through this it's not like i feel any better necessarily but i kind of have that feeling that i'm gonna be all right like i thought I th- i'll think about suicide a little bit maybe like just in a vague kind of way but nothing like before where i was where i was actively thinking like hmm I don't know if I want to be here anymore, you know? Now I I go I have some darkness, there's no question, but it's so much rarer. It's so it's pretty it's just rare in general, and it's just it's it's micro instead of macro. It's it's mini instead of meta. That's the only way I can explain it. So what a year. I got married this year. I never thought I would get married. I I, I basically thought my life was over after my big crash and burn when I was 32 years old, and I ended up uh, just burning my life down in the most dramatic of fashion with very serious negative consequences. And I just thought, you know, guys like me don't get married. I'm lucky to be alive. I'm I'm I'll just survive. Kind of. That's kind of how I felt. Maybe I wouldn't always say that, but deep inside, that's kind of where I felt. And, and I slowly got out of that. And the idea that I'm married to the woman of my dreams and we live this beautiful life, it's it's just amazing. I can't, If you're listening and you've listened to this podcast before, maybe you're a friend of mine, maybe you read Straight Pepper Diet. I don't know who you are, but I hope that if you're an addict like me, that you get the gift of the program and uh the spiritual gifts that go along with it not just sobriety whatever that form of that is for you whether it's you know not not doing whatever it is but the spiritual gift that goes with it i describe one of the ways i think of that a lot is in is in um the nicotine program i heard this person talking about how they I heard somebody talking about that Ten years off of nicotine, and they still reach for their pack of cigarettes in their breast pocket, and they still occasionally uh, crave a cigarette. That to me really highlights the difference between the spiritual program of recovery versus abstinence. Um, I don't crave cigarettes. I don't reach for cigarettes. I don't crave any of this stuff. I'm just I have a. I'm not in fear of it. I can walk into a bar. In fact, recently some friends came to visit and we uh, met with a, a group of people and we were in a bar. It, there was beer right in front of me, mixed drinks. It doesn't even cross my mind that, to pick it up and drink it. Um, so, yeah. So anyway, if you listen to this podcast the way all the way through, I want to thank you Um, thanks for listening to my rambling. I don't know what I expected from this podcast. I really was excited to do it. I did have some fun doing it. I really did. I like, it's fun. I I didn't, I wasn't sure how it would work out. I, I'm actually pleasantly surprised that I'm able to talk. I don't necessarily say the most interesting things. I certainly don't say it very concisely, but I am able, I am able to talk. Me, me, me. I am able to talk. And, uh, I, I know as I've said before on this podcast, uh, I've spoken to, I spoke to a friend of mine who's who's very successful in the entertainment industry and has his own podcast, and I kind of told him what I did, and I already knew what 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 I was doing wrong. Like you can't have a podcast when you're not a famous person and talk about all kinds of stuff. I talk about golf, I talk about spirituality, I talk about liberalism. It's just too varied, and the only thing that would bind you. The only reason you would listen is for me, and I am not much of a draw. So if I really wanted a podcast that was going to last or that was going to attract a a listenership, I I would pick one subject and really go into it and probably have some guests involved. And I just don't have one. I mean, my golf thing is really about my golf journey. I don't know. I, I It's not un, unlikely that I might come back and do one that's just my golf journey. Kind of like a a um, the Dan plan thing, but for me, you know. But I'm so deep into my golf journey that it's it feels like I would have to backtrack a lot. And it's also golf, you know, the oral presentation of the golf process, it seems a little difficult. And... You know, I also talk some politics and social stuff and, and, um, you know, there's just so many good podcasts out there. I mean, why would you listen to me if you want to listen to liberal politics when you could listen to, uh, Intercept or the Democracy Now or Chapo Trap House if you want comedic stuff. And I'm just not going to put in the time and energy to research that stuff the way that a good journalist would and the way that you deserve and can easily access and as far as spirituality, I like talking about the sobriety. I like talking about, uh, you know, the nicotine, the alcohol, the sex, the Al-Anon, the codependency. I like telling stories about that stuff. But, you know, I've written, I, I'm a writer. I wrote a memoir about it. I'm about to write another memoir about it. Uh, so anyway, that's my thought about it. And, you know, if for whatever reason this took off, I would probably have stuck with it. It hasn't definitely some uh listeners out there but def not enough to um justify not that you're not important I love you <laughs> but uh you know it's take it does take some time and effort and uh not that much really we'll see I am I am closing I'm closing it down I'm closing shop down if I start something new it will be something totally different um and it'll start later but uh finish this up you as if you listen to this, you know that I have um my goal i i s with regard to golf, I had a two month goal and that was to shoot par at my home course chevy chase i and my i put my entire heart and soul into it man i you know what there's two different types of goals right there's process goals and there's um There's objective goals, you know, or what are they called? There's process goals and there's, well, let's just call them scoring goals. So in golf, process goals would be, you know, practice, um, short game, one hour, uh, twice a week, whatever. And then the the short game and the actual, the the scoring goal would be, you know, get up and down 30% of the time or something like that. So my process goal was to basically I was all in. I was I played four times a week. I practiced every day, even when I went to the course. I would practice, warm up, and then go play. Um, I would on the days that I don't go the course, which are Friday, Saturday, or no Sunday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday. I would practice here on my home net and videotape it. I swear I'm probably the most videotaped golfer in the history of the world. Uh, Tiger Woods, I'm, not, I'm talking about like a slow motion video. I bet I have more slow motion video of my swings than there are slow motion video of Tiger Woods. Seriously. Uh, I get a lot out of it. I like that process. I do understand there's limitations to it. And um, so with regard to my goal, I did not reach my scoring goal, which is to shoot par. Um, I think I kind of learned in the way, I, I learned on the way, through the process that, I don't know, if I was on an easier course playing that many times, so let's say I I played four times a week and I did it for two months, so that's like 30 rounds of golf about, I think if I would have done that, like let's say at Harding or Roosevelt or Shoal Canyon or some easy course, easier course, especially a wide open course, I think I might have had a shot at it. You know, I have shot 75 before. And that was when my swing was very grooved. It wasn't a good swing because it wasn't powerful, but it was very predictable. I hit it straight. I did not hit it far, but I hit it straight. And on a short course, when my short game was good, I shot a 75. Now, would I have been able to shoot a 72? I don't know. I definitely think I would have been able to go lower than I did at my course because my course has so many par threes and it just has so much trouble that you can play really well and still be three or four over through nine because um, a lot of shots that are not OB basically have the effect of being OB because you it's, it takes more than one shot to get out of certain trouble at Chevy, if that makes any sense. But the bottom line is I gave it my all. And I knew all along that I was going to have to groove my swing, and I think I miscalculated how close I was to perfecting my swing. And we've talked about this a gazillion times, what that means, perfecting my swing. It doesn't mean perfect. What it means is uh, having a swing that is mechanically sound. And, uh, you know, I saw a quote the other day, something something to the effect of... Uh, a golfer, it was something to the effect of, I think it was like Sam Sneed or somebody said, a golf pro insisting that the golf is simple doesn't make it so, you know, kind of like that thing. And the reality is, is the full golf swing is extremely complicated. Um, it's extremely difficult. It's a magical beast. And, and, uh, I thought I was a lot closer than I was. And, um, I gave it my best. I think the best I did around Chevy was seven over. I might have done four over once. I'm not sure, seven or four, but not close to par. Um, there's a long, a big difference between four over and and seven over. I mean, four over and par. And um, at Chevy, in order to shoot par, you would have to, I would have to dominate um, a couple of the par fours where they. I would have to birdie. You can't just shoot par at Chevy. You're not going to just shoot straight pars around there like you would at say a, a flat, easy, wide course where you could just like you know have 16 pars, one birdie, and one bogey. That's not going to happen at Chevy. No way. You there's there's holes out there that there's no way. Like there's a 220 yard par three. No way are you gonna are you gonna par that twice? Very unlikely. Very unlikely. Even for the best players in the world, it would be unlikely to par a 220-yard par three twice. So, um, but, you know, I really opened my mind to trying to learn some new things. Um, in some respect, I'm extremely stubborn in the way I'm going about this. and. I really have to believe in my process. I think I will go crazy if I didn't. And on the other hand, I do need to recognize where things are not working and things I'm struggling with. I think that's one of the biggest things I've learned, and hopefully it transfers out to, to my non-golf world. And that is, there's... It's kind of like my dad said. My dad has had taught me very little in my life, but one thing he says is, He said, told me is when it comes to tools, he says, don't force it. And what he means by that is when you use a tool, if you use a tool the right way, it should feel natural. You know, it shouldn't, you shouldn't be force it, forcing it. It should work. It should work right. It should feel right. Ben Hogan basically said the same thing about the golf swing. And so there's a lot of things I've been struggling with. I do stick to this. I believe this with all my heart, absolutely with all my heart. I believe, and in my mind too, that if you look at all good golfers with very little, almost no exceptions, they all have certain positions. And so if you achieve those positions, you're going to have a good golf swing. Now, whether you achieve those golf swings, those positions, by going after them, individually or whether you achieve those golf positions because you've come to a good swing through some other means through some more let's say natural means that is a a matter of debate and a lot of people would debate about that um and the reason i bring this up now this is this whole podcast i'll talk a little spirituality at the end of this so if you just want to fast forward this uh Feel free, but I'm going to talk some really hardcore golf here um, for a while. So at the end, I'll, I'll talk a little um, spirituality, and then we'll wrap it up and say goodbye. So this weekend, um, no, not this weekend. A couple days ago, I drove out to Scottsdale uh, thanks to a friend of mine who invited me out there. And he's friends with a uh, somewhat of a swing guru, golf coach. He's a PXG brand ambassador, very well known on the Internet. And and um, he's a guy that you probably see out on the range on the PGA Tour with a little tag on him. He knows a lot of the pros and a very successful instructor by the name of Terry Rouse, R-O-W-L-E-S, I believe. And... Um, him and this guy, Dr. Will Wu, and another guy, Dr. Phil Cheatham. Dr. Phil, Dr. Will Wu is a, uh, I think he's a kinematics Ph.D. Uh, or some type. of, He's a Ph.D. and I think he teaches teaches at Cal State Long Beach or Cal State or or UC UC no Cal State Fullerton, Cal State Long Beach, UC Irvine. I don't know one of those schools down there. And he's in, but he teaches basically athletes how to move better and how to practice and things like that. And he's very involved in the golf world and getting more and more involved. So they have those two, but, my, but mainly the main two authors of this uh, research project were, um, Terry Rawls and this guy, Phil Cheatham, C H E C H E E T H A M I believe. And, uh, Dr. Phil Cheatham has been working for the Olympics, the uh, United States Olympics team. He works down in Chula Vista, where they do the, um, you know, the non, the summer um, games sports. And he does a lot of track and field, and he's made his way towards golf. Um, of course, now that golf is in the Olympics, and he does biomechanics. And what he does is he's he does a lot of he's a I think he's an information and technology guy, and what he so what this thing was was these two guys were doing a test and what they were doing is that they were hooking golfers up to a, a 3D analysis so you have the, all these cords if you look at my instagram posts you can see me and other golfers hooked up to these things you have wires hooked up to you and they're and they're and they're basically they track you in a field um and track you in a a field, not not a literally a field, a, a a field like a zone, you know, an ozone, a a a, matrix, the air in a 3D model. So they put all these wires on you and all these straps on you, and they basically so that maps your swing out. And then what they did, they mapped the the club out too. And then what they did was they have you hit balls and they track that too. It's on TrackMan and. um the other one, foresight, I believe. And what they do is they tell you to hit seven straight balls, which you do. And then they, within a tolerance of the start. So, you know, within, I don't know, five degrees right or left of the target line, start point, the, the start target. And then what they do is they have you twist the club in your hand. You Keep your grip the way it is, but you twist the club closed at but basically forty five degrees closed, and then they want you to start it online, which of course is very, very difficult obviously the club club is closed forty five degrees and your grip is normal, then you have a hell of a time not hooking it, and they want it, and then you do the same thing with the club wide open forty five degrees the other way so so they did that with us amateurs. we had a bunch of guys there, I think probably anywhere from um zero handicap to 15 handicap and they did a bunch of guys and they would see how he did it i i did it and my swing was so my swing is all over the place i just made a major change so i was having a hard time but i kind of pulled it off i think and um and then they the net and then that was on one day and then the next day i came back and i watched them do it with a bunch of pros so um um James Hahn was there um uh Robert Garragus was there uh JJ Spawn was there um this guy TK was there and who else was there what other it was another pro there um there was a few more pros there I'm I'm skipping I'm missing one big one who the hell am I missing JJ Spawn um Hahn um oh um Colt Nost. nosed and they did that with them too so basically they were uh, they were going to get some comparison to see what how they did it obviously the pros did it better than we did surprisingly depends if a pro naturally has a very shut grip is probably going to have a or a, a very strong grip they're going to have a very a much easier time hitting it online uh, with a closed club face if they have a weak grip they're gonna have a hard, easier time. You know, me, I'm neutral. I I didn't have too hard of a time getting it to go straight when I had an open club face, but shut was a little more difficult. Whatever. And so they take this all this data, massive amounts of data. I mean, the machine they were using was like they probably had a hundred thousand dollars worth of machinery easily with TrackMan, Foresight and this 3D tracker and then the the computers that they're hooked up to. So it looks like it's a lab on the golf course. It was very interesting. So they did that, and and that's whatever it is. There's really not much to learn there from anybody at this point, except for the scientists, right? But one of the reasons we went there was was that Terry, this guy, who who teaches, from what I understand, based on the uh, Mike Davis model, which is this biomechanics model... And he was gonna kind of look at us, run us through the Mike Davis test. I'm sorry, I always say Mike Davis. Mike Davis was the um, was the head of the PGA for a while. Uh, not Mike Davis. Mike Adams. Mike Adams. Mike fucking Adams. I've done that like a thousand times. Mike Adams is this guy. He's been he's been a pro, a teaching pro since the '70s, I think. He's a guru, and he teaches. Coaches and he and Terry is one Terry Rawls is one of his proteges from what I understand, and um, so he teaches this way. It's a it's a different way of teaching. There's been an article in Golf Magazine, Golf Digest about this, and basically what it is is it kind of challenges the way that coaches teach when they teach one swing, one swing fits all people type of thing, and what they do is they run you through some very basic battery of tests and they tell you some things about the way you should swing based on one, the dimensions of your body and two, the way your body moves. So the dimensions of your body are pretty basic. They measure your height versus your wingspan. Okay? The second dimension they measure is your um, forearm length versus your upper arm length, okay? And both of those things have to do, you know, those things are very easy to understand, okay? If you have a very long wing, wingspan, that means your arms are going to hang down low, right? A long wingspan relative to your body. In other words, taller than your body. Let's say for me, I have a very long wingspan. My, my wingspan is like three or four inches longer than my body. I have really long arms, especially considering that because I, I'm i not real buffed up these days, my shoulders aren't particularly wide either because I don't lift that much on shoulders. In fact, I try to stay away from lifting on shoulders because everybody I know who's tall that does a lot of shoulder lifting ends up with shoulder problems later in life. So I really stay away from shoulders. So I, have, I don't have particularly wide shoulders and yet I still have a four-inch wingspan that's higher than my height. So I'm 6'3". They measure me at 6'3". I think I'm 6'4", but whatever. And then my wingspan is like three or four inches longer than that. So basically what that means is if I were to bend over at a normal um, uh, degree of forward bend, which would be like 40 degrees, then my arms are hanging way down. If I have a normal size club, which I don't, actually have longer clubs, um, then... then, I'm going to be hitting the ground, right? So basically they tell you to stand up taller. But, and so that's really basic, right? Um, What I've been doing recently is I actually been gripping a little lower on the club and bending down more because I want to get through blah, 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 whatever. Um, And then you have the thing with the elbow and the forearm. So I have a lot of, it it was, it is a little bit interesting because I had a lot of problems getting through my, getting my elbow inside the right hip which if i could tell any golfer listening to this that's technically minded if there's one marker one marker that marks a good swing versus a not good swing or an efficient swing versus an inefficient swing or if there's one marker that you want to look at across the board and you know those things that identify good golfers versus bad golfers it's that right elbow inside the right hip right all good golfers have their right elbow inside their right hip, right hip at the uh, P4 P four position, basically where the club is parallel to the ground on the downswing. And rarely do you see that. Now, you'll see some guys pin their elbow kind of like even with their hip or just a tad inside like, say, a Patrick Reed. And then you'll see guys that are crazy inside with their elbow like... Um, like Sergio Garcia, and then everybody else is pretty much in there somewhere. But you're not going to see anybody with their elbow back behind their hip. And so anyway, um, that was part of the test. And one of the other things that was part of the test was you, you bend forward and you put your hands together and you swing back. You swing your hands back. No club. Put your hands together like you're going to clap them, but hold them together in a golf position. Take your golf position standing forward at whatever degree bend you bend, and then turn back, right? Turn your hands back. And the way you turn your hands, whether your elbow protrudes or tucks, says something about the way you should take the golf club back, okay? I haven't done the research on this. I haven't seen the underlying research on this, but there's one big problem with that for me, it's that I have trained myself to tuck my I have trained myself to tuck my elbow in. If I did it naturally, my elbow would probably go out. So you know, the other biomechanic or the other test is you put a club across your thighs and you pivot. Um, people who pivot to their back, leg are you know, post up, and people with front leg or posters or sliders or gliders if they're back, posters if they're front, and if you're in the middle, you're a spinner or a single or a center post or whatever. And again, the same problem with that is I've spent 10 years training myself to do that a certain way. So to try to figure out how I would do that naturally, it's it's kind of like I'm beyond that. I, I, there's no natural for me anymore, I don't think. <laughs> so I, I take a little less um i i i think a little less about those two things than i do the the absolute physical dimensions part so i went out there and the guy looked at me and he measured me out and he thought it was very unusual because i'm a glider which means i i i tend to post forward which is basically because of my height um and my long wingspan But I also am a guy who he thinks should bring the club inside because I tend um, to—the way I move my arms back is unusual. And it's very unusual. It's very unnatural to do it the way I do it. And the reason I do it the way I do it is because I'm basically copying a swing that I like, which is Rafa Rafa Cabreo Bayo, which I just recently started copying, and that is tucking the right elbow inside— rotating the, the shoulder open and then the elbow stays really tucked in all, uh, you know, Ben Hogan or something. So I, I have, I, I don't put much credence into the, the, uh, relevance of that part of it. I don't think I probably naturally would do that anyway. I think when I originally tested myself under the, um, Mike Adams thing, I came up with me being a, um, um, what's called a spinner. There's three different ways to create power from the ground. This is what his whole kind of theory is based on. It's spinning, gliding, and um, launching. Launching is upward force from the ground. Spinning is torque, and gliding is side to side. Right. And they when I did it this time, they said I'm um, three parts glide, two parts um, torque, or or, or um, center. Um, fuck. Uh, twist, fuck, what's it called? I always forget it. It's glide, launch, and spin, okay? Spin just sounds bad, right? Um, but when I originally tested myself, I was almost all spin. And I think it's just because I was in a different stage in my golf swing Because I, so I would do those things a little differently. I mean, the main thing that made me different was that whole elbow tuck thing, which is isn't really natural anyway. So I didn't put much credence into it. But I got to tell you, going out there and being involved in a pretty major swing change that I was really happy with. I, I had gotten in the position where I had really high hands, and I was crossing the line a little bit at the top. And that was helping me kind of drop the elbow in. If you want to watch a guy that does this really well, uh, watch Kevin Pauley. He's a, he's a golf tech teacher up in, I think, the, the Bay Area Filipino dude and man this guy hits the ball a mile and has a beautiful swing but he recently changed his swing so that he was across the top you know a la John Daly he was his club was across the top at, at the top at the top of the backswing across the line like you know Phil Mickelson or John Daly and then he would tuck the elbow in and the the club would kind of like fall back and drop into the slot And there's something about doing that because I have this terrible tendency to stand that fucking club up in the downswing and there is nothing worse. There is no fucking worse thing you can do on the golf swing than stand that club up. It is so basic to the golf swing. It is so contrary to the golf swing. If you stand that club up in the downswing You are basically doing the antithesis of what a golf swing is. It is not a swing. The point of a swing is a pull motion, not a push motion. So the think of the butt of the club dragging the club head through the air. It's going. The club head is going to drop down with gravity and then whip through the impact zone. When you do the very opposite, when you stand that club head up, right? In other words, think of having the the um, club head. You know, think of holding the club in your hand at a ninety degree angle or a parallel to the ground, right? And then pulling down on it, it's going to stand up. Kills speed. It kills everything. It's the worst thing you possibly do, and it is exactly what I tend to do. So I've been kind of putting it across the line a little bit, and that helps me get the feeling of that of that um, laying the club down and getting my elbow in. So, anyways, I was doing that. I go to the driving range. I'm hitting the ball pretty well but I'm not I'm not able to get the club completely completely uh flush square at impact and so I'm fading a little bit but I'm hitting with a lot of power. And I'm just warming up out there, you know. And then we go through the whole testing and then I get the instruction from this guy. And this is a completely different way of thinking about the golf swing. It it's kind of weird because you know he tells you these things that are based on these tests that I just told you about, the biomechanic kind of range of motion and, and physical characteristics tests, And then he tells you these things, and they're kind of like these vague kind of things. And, uh, you know, like one of them is, he told me I should pull the club inside on my backswing, which, you know, whatever, um, Very difficult for me after training the very opposite for so long, especially given that I don't really think it's accurate. Given that the reason that he thinks I should do that is because of this move that I've grooved, which is completely (laughs) unnatural for me, not his fault. Um, But, you know, and then there's this weird psychological thing where when you have an instructor and they're telling you something to do, you you kind of like want it to work. And they say things. They go like, oh, see how that, every time you hit a good shot, they're like, oh, see how that is, blah, blah, blah. And you're like, yeah, yeah. And it kind of builds up this thing. And it's not necessarily factually accurate. It's funny. My friend told me he was watching me hit balls. And I was I was hitting the same ball. I was hitting a nine, I was hitting the same club, a nine iron. And I was hitting it what I, I was hitting when I first got there and I warmed up. No, no, I'm sorry, an eight iron. And I was hitting it when I first got there and I was warming up and there was a flag about 163 out. You know, these are range balls, but very good range balls. And, you know, the weather was, there was no wind. The weather was 65 degrees or something. So everything was pretty much equal. And I was hitting it out there. You know, I was hitting my eight iron. If I was crushing it, I was probably hitting it 155. And if normally I was hitting it 150, you know, but it was fading off a lot. And, um, then later when I'm hitting the eight iron, when the guy's telling me, uh, to hit it a certain way, I'm hitting it the same exact distance and people are reacting like, oh, wow, that's great. (laughs) You know? And I actually kind of fell into it myself until I kind of reflected later on and went, wait a second, I was hitting the ball actually a little further before that. And then the other thing that was kind of a mind fuck is like they tell you he the guy tells you to do these things, and they're very contrary to the to the kind of you know the nature of the way I go about the golf swing, right or wrong i I, I go by the numbers i if I don't have a reason not to, I stay neutral, and I get it their their argument is that you know there is no neutral. the only person who should be neutral is the person who has a body that fits neutral everything's equal everything's the average height or whatever and so i get that but it was very disconcerting to have somebody tell you just things that don't really fit into the mode in fact to fit against the basic rules like you know whip the club head inside um you know stand the club up uh you know, pull your feet back into a, into a draw position, all these, like some of this stuff. And so it kind of threw me into a bit of a tailspin to be honest with you, because I, I just don't, I don't do well with instruction that doesn't have explanation behind it. I, you know, I'm just, it's just too, I, I spent too much time doing this to have somebody tell me to do something. And then based on a very little, very short analysis of me, you know, how do I know it's not based on a mistake? Like, for instance, this backswing thing is clear is definitely a mistake. Like, I would never swing back the way that I did in the testing had I not been drilling that for the last few weeks. And it's not natural, but it is what I do now. So without giving him that information, that could change everything. So give me a bit of a... I, I got in a bit of a head spin, I got to be honest. And then when I got back, I just thought... I just thought to myself, you know. Another thing too is I I really hurt I really was sore as hell and I was thinking about it. I'm like, why am I so sore? I hit a ton of golf balls all the time. There's nothing different here and I realized I was I wanted it to work so bad What this guy was telling me that I was really trying I was really swinging my as hard as I could on every shot, really trying to make it work. And that doesn't work. It's not sustainable. You're going to hurt yourself and it doesn't work. I'm not saying what this guy told me was wrong but what I did when I got back was I said, "Look, I got to put this on the back burner." Luckily, I got video of this guy telling me this stuff, you know. I mean, this guy's a badass teacher that, I mean, teaches PGA pro tours and guys, guys and stuff. But I had to put what he told me on the back burner and go back to what I know cuz I was very close to solidifying it. And my thing is I'm really close and if I get into all the positions that I want to be in, and I'm comfortable swinging, and I'm still not getting the club head speed and the consistency that I want, then I'll try something different. But for now, I'm I'm too close to to completely change directions, you know. And and then I kind of took it to one other little tweak, and I I you know I did that. It kind of made me feel better. Came back, started hitting the ball. And then I I realized like, okay, let me think about a couple of things he did say. Because one of the things he, he did say was he was talking about the shoulder plane. So if you have long arms, right, you're down. So basically their analysis is three things. One is how you get to the top, right? That's whether you bring the club inside through the middle or high, right? And then there's the where you are at the top, and then there's the how you go down, right? So really what he talked about, he told me, you know, you should be going down through your shoulder. So there's shoulder, there's bicep, and then there's forearm, basically. Uh, There's other, people categorize it differently, but that's basically what it is. From a down-the-view line, the golfer is going to take their shaft. The shaft is either going to intersect their shoulder, their bicep, or their forearm. And of course... As you take it down, when you start high, it's gonna go lower. But the orig- the middle of the shaft should go down through whatever. So if it goes through the shoulder, then it's gonna drop to the bicep, right? Almost every golfer is gonna go through all three. But if you start at the middle, if you start at the bicep, then it's gonna go to the then it's gonna drop down to the forearm. Then it's gonna drop down below the plane. So I've always wanted to go through the shoulder, and I've always had a very difficult time doing it. I always end up dropping it way shallow, which is a terrible thing for me because I have long arms. So that was a little helpful because, you know, he reaffirmed that, yes, I do need to be bringing it through the shoulder. And so I've been really concentrating lately on how the fuck am I going to do that? I've been trying a billion different ways and nothing ever seems to work right. I mean, I can get my right elbow inside my right hip, but I end up dropping the claw, club, you know, a foot below plane on the downswing which kills all kinds of speed. So and before I went up there to Phoenix or to Scottsdale and did this, I've been I've been practicing basically feeling this is real versus feel. If you're a golfer and you're trying to learn the one thing that the golf instructors will show you by way of example is feel versus real. So they if they want you to If you're dropping the club way down and they want it to go up to your bicep, they're not going to tell you to put it to your bicep because they know you're not going to do that because your feel is going to, you're going to feel like that's not, you're going to feel like that's way higher than your bicep because you're used to going down your forearm. So what they're going to tell you is they're going to tell you to bring it through your shoulder and then you'll drop it down the bicep. So it's kind of like telling you more, you know, it's like if they want the volume to be at five, they tell you 10 because you used to be at zero, right? So you'll think, Five is a 10. So what I've been doing is trying to get that club to come through my neck. And by doing that, I get my hands out and I get my shoulders out. Another thing I heard they say, and this is something I heard him say to one of the pros there. And he said, no, no pro is going to have their hands drop from the backswing. They all go out. And that's something I've been saying. I actually got into a little Instagram fight with this teacher Who is talking about dropping the hands in the backswing. I hate when people talk about dropping the hands. It's the worst fucking thing. Drop the hands, the club stands up. It's as simple as that. So um, unless you're turning forward so fast that your hands are actually not dropping relative to your body because you're spinning so fast, but that's another thing. So bottom line is, you know, take this information. You fit it in with your with your understanding it's all I can do I can't change the way I think I have to know what I'm doing I have to understand I'm like this with everything I've never been able to change it maybe I will be able to change it in the future but I just have to understand why I'm doing stuff I can't just do it I mean I can just do it but it really helps me to know why so I feel really good now I've been back I've been been back in training um (laughs) got my head back uh, in control. I think it was just really bad timing that I went up there in a complete state of flux with my golf swing. So I was already kind of shaken because I had made such a major change. I was really shaken and and having this guy tell me these things that aren't within the normal discussion of golf swings, you know, not something you're you're not going to hear a whole lot of golf instructors tell you to whip the club inside or to, um, you know, flare open your front foot and pull your right foot back and stand wider than your shoulders. And things like this that these biomechanic type of instructors do, which is it's great. It makes sense. It actually makes sense. If it makes sense, I'm down. It makes absolute sense that somebody who has long arms is going to have to make an adjustment to what we consider neutral in order to have the same characteristics that we want in the golf swing. Insofar as hip turn, right elbow inside, club exiting left, all that good stuff. He also told me to take a strong grip. Again, that had to do with that elbow thing. And I'm not down. We'll we'll see. I can always change that later. Uh so yeah, it was a trip. I went up there, and and uh, you know it was a great opportunity. If you check out my Instagram, um, Joseph W. Nows at Joseph W. Nows on Instagram, you see I posted some some videos of these pros um, and uh, elite amateurs taking golf swings with all this gear on and stuff. I got to talk to some of these guys. Boy, I tell you, Scottsdale's a trip, man. I don't know if you guys have been up to Scottsdale, but it's like, it's it's a little too rich and white and perfect for me. It's a little scary. I think, I, I think after hearing, you know, you got the crazy uh, Joe Apario and then you got that that guy that I did the podcast on that just got blasted by the cops, and you you know it's a Republican state and and the weird anti-immigration laws and stuff. It's it's and then and Scottsdale is even more kind of Stepford wifey. <laughs> you know I was at this kind of fancy golf club, private it's public semi-public called Greyhawk, but it was just like every you know it's a nine nine out of ten people are white couple, you know, some Asians, rich Asians, most of, I guess a few of the ones I saw were PGA guys. And it just had this weird feeling. There's just just something about being out in the desert where everything is manufactured. There's really no natural resources out there to have all these beautiful golf courses and all this water and all these rich people driving their um, brand new like BMWs and Jaguar's and Lexus and such and playing this, you know, over $100 around golf course. It just weird. And then I was by some I was out there with some extremely wealthy people, especially the second day. I mean, I'm there was like four PGA pros and a former pro baseball player Eric Gagne. And so these guys just hearing these guys talk and their and their lives of privilege. I mean, you know, literally multimillionaires. All of them in their, well, a few of them in their 20s. Some of them in their 30s. I think um, Robert Garragus. probably 40 or something. I don't know. Oh, man. Now, I'll probably say the most impressive thing I saw all day, on all, all the times. There was a long drive guy there. And Robert Garagas was out hitting him. It was incredible. That guy... I don't know what's up with that guy. I know he has some tour wins. But that is one of the most powerful and sweet swings I have ever seen in my life. Um, wow. That guy is fucking amazing. I would put his swing next to any swing. And you know the interesting thing about it too? Is if you look at my Instagram post, you'll see his swing. He does an Anika Sorenstam he actually releases his head before he hits the ball when he's actually hitting the ball he's already looking forward and he hits the sweet spot perfect every fucking time that guy's good we'll see how he does this year i feel like i feel like he's kind of on the uh you know he, to me i didn't, you know i didn't talk to him a whole lot but just hearing him talk to some of the other guys and stuff i get the feeling he's one of these guys that's not down with the whole um, you know, get fit and work your ass off constantly. Um, golf guys like Dustin Johnson or Jason Day. I, I feel like he's kinda old school, uh have a vodka after the round kind of guy. And he looks like it. Not in terrible shape, but he's not all yoked out like all these guys. Um uh some of these guys. Colt Nost was there too. He's kind of the same same deal. Uh, great putter, Whew, great putter Hits the ball great too Of course all of these guys hit the ball great But um, yeah um, Shit, fuck man 52 minutes into this thing On my final podcast I, There's no possible way anybody's listening to this No possible way If there are, God bless you Let's change gears here Wind this motherfucker down So Oh man! Um, what a great year! I already said this. I've read, I've read so many books. I've listened to a bunch of books on Audible. I've read a bunch of books. I love it. I think, I think if you just look at every year of my life, the more books I've read, the better the year is. And this is the most books I've ever read. Maybe last year I read more. I don't think so because I had, I started doing Audible this year. On the way out to Phoenix is a six-hour drive each way. I listened to an entire memoir and then half of a uh, stock book. I listened to a book about day trading. <laughs> um, so just amazing. And got married this year. You know, last year my mom died. Um, so that sucked. This Christmas not having her around, but um, you know, it's been a weird. It's been a weird year politically, especially, you know, I live in California and Los Angeles. I'm liberal. I surround myself with like-minded people. And, um, you know, not a happy time politically. Um, There's a lot of nasty shit that's happening in the United States. I know some of you may disagree, but I think that's that's true. And, um, but you know what? You have to, I had to this year find a way not to concentrate on that and make that my life. Um, the United States political situation is not my life. It may affect my life, but it's not my life. Um, I think people give the president of the United States way too much credit for how much he and, and his cabinet affect their lives. I'm not saying he hasn't done some horrible things that will have um, a lot of ramifications and have had a lot of ramifications, but we've had terrible presidents before, and uh we'll have them again and uh we have to keep the attention the focus on where we have power, and the only thing we have power is over our own actions, and our own actions include our own thoughts, right so going into two thousand eighteen um i'm gonna I'm gonna do more than I did in 2016 and more than I did in 2017. You know, more, more, more. Um, I, I feel like there's a, there's going to be a balance point. Like I'm going to flip over. I don't feel like my life is completely, I feel like I, I, I dip my toe into the spiritual world. No, that's not true. I don't dip my toe into it. I jump in the pool, but I don't live in the pool. <laughs> I'm not amphibious yet. Is that right, amphibious? I'm not a fish yet. And I want to be a fish. I want to live with God all the time. My God, the God of my own understanding, which has nothing to do with, the, with that thing that just, that, that, that feeling that just pulsed through you when I said the word God and you got all creeped out a little bit because you're thinking of Jesus and all the, all the gnarly like uh, church groups and stuff. That's not at all what I mean, although I had that same feeling. Even when I said it, knowing what I mean by God, which is the power of the universe, the love of the universe. And um, that's where I want to live. Of course, we live on Earth. We're humans. We have to deal with this. We're in a human incarnation. I, I have to feed myself. I have to walk. I don't float. Or I do float, but I don't uh, float on air. And, but. I want to live in the spiritual world as much as possible. And that means, uh, you know, less Netflix, less Facebook, less Instagram, less Twitter. Shit, I might go no Twitter. And uh, I'm thinking about taking all my social media off my phone and just, you know, go deal with it when I'm on my laptop, which isn't even every day. And, uh, you know, more of the stuff that fills me up with, with love. I want to write more. Work more, exercise more, you know, focus on the people in my life, the people that I can affect. Uh, I've got plenty of work to do in 12-step programs. There's plenty of people who need my help. I'm an expert. You are too. If you're in recovery, you're an expert. You have something that no one else has to offer, and that's your story. There's nothing more powerful than helping an addict than one addict talking to another. And so I have that. I have my writing. And um, I want to I check out of this world. Uh, I'm not interested. I, I really want to uh, check out of this world. Even with movies and stuff. I, I watch way too many movies. It's laziness, you know. And uh, there's so much to do. I, I, don't, I know we're in a golden age of television, but I don't need to watch every goddamn series and uh, every movie that comes out. So that's a lot of negativity, and that's another thing is just like refocusing stuff and lightness of touch, you know? I I really envy people who have lightness of touch. My wife's really good at this. She can just go with the flow. I don't go with the flow very well right now, but I'm going to. So more of the same for me, vegan, meditation, prayer, 12-step meetings, being of service to my sponsees, uh, maybe making a little more contact with my sponsor. write, work, live, love. Nah, 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 nah. You guys get it? You've been listening to me for what twenty six fucking podcasts now, man. Yes, so that's that's what's up with life, you know. I want to read some. I'm gonna. I want to get back on my. Um, Track of not just meditating, but meditating, reading some Ernest Holmes or some Michael Beckwith, um, and then really it's Ernest Holmes. I mean that's that's what does it for me, man. I, I I read some Ernest Holmes. You just pick up any Ernest Holmes book and just turn to any page and just read that for a few for a few minutes and then do a meditation, and it just feels good. Feels good. I really want to release. The, the struggle that I have with golf, the anger that I have, the the resentment. this I, I have this arrogant thing where I think that I should be so good by now because I care so much and I've tried so hard. You know, I remember one of my dear friends told me when I wrote Straight Pepper Diet, when I first done the manuscript, and I just told her, I'm like, you don't understand. I went through hell and I've written this book and I spent so much time on this book. And she had read a little bit of it. And she told me, it doesn't matter how much time you spent on it. It matters whether it's done. And it wasn't done. And that's the same thing with my golf game. Like, I guess the reason I'm angry is because I haven't been efficient enough. I don't think I've been efficient enough. I think that after 10 years of doing this, I should be great by now. And I'm not. And I felt the same way about my book. And, the, and she was right. It doesn't matter how much time you've spent on it. You know, it wasn't done. And I ended up spending probably, I ended up rewriting that damn book. Uh, I love that book. I, I, and, and I'm proud of it. And I did the best I could with what I had at the time. And I could have done a lot worse if I wouldn't, if I would have just stuck to my guns. and been like, this is good enough. But golf is great. Golf's not like books, you know. Ball, books are subjective. Golf is not subjective. Uh, that ball goes, you know, if It doesn't care how much time I've spent on practicing. If I hit the ball with a glancing blow from right to left, it's going to fade with an open face. It doesn't give a fuck how badly I want to draw it. <laughs> if I misalign the putt, and uh, it doesn't matter how much time I've practiced putting, it's still going to miss the fucking hole if I don't uh, open my shoulder up correctly and tilt my sternum 20 degrees from the ball during my setup on my pitch, I'm probably going to skull it. And it doesn't matter how many times I've read James Seekman's book. So, my desire for this year is to love the process, to fall in love with the process, and to believe that I deserve to be great. And believe that I am, and to do the actions that will make me great, and to let that all come together. Man, maybe I'll come back on this podcast in um, in a few months and report that I've shot par. That's my dream. Not just to shoot par. My dream is to get my handicap down to zero. My dream is to be an efficient golfer. You know. To be an elite golfer, a guy who goes out there and hits the ball hard and far and where he expects to hit it, and pretty much having a birdie putt on every green. That's what good players do. They have birdie putts. They have birdie putts damn near every hole on easy courses. Oh, boy. All right. Read. Read, 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 meditate, pray, help, service, love, love. Write, work, struggle, but don't struggle. Right, struggle, but don't struggle. All right, people. That's all I got. So after 26, let's see, that's like 40 hours of podcasting. I bid you adieu. I love you. Peace and blessings.